Mike is hot. Mike's hot. Waiting hot, for hot, 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 hot. waiting for a real MC to pick it up. <laughs> it's not you or me. <laughs> okay, here we go. Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane, and with me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, everyone. So um, today is November nineteenth. I think it is. Right? We're recording yeah. a little bit early because yeah. you're flitting off to do Turkey Day. Yeah, no, I'm going to be in Colorado for Thanksgiving. Shout out to Colorado, the 303. I'm sad uh. that you just jumped right over my joke about turkeys flying. Oh wow! Yeah, I'm usually one for a good bird joke, but I, I guess <laughs> I guess you know. Birds are no laughing matter to me anymore. <laughs> um, now that I spend most of my day impersonating a loon online, it's very important to me that um, you know birds are taken seriously and that we maintain our bird rights. That's true. Um, but anyway, so we're going to open um, the show today by talking about the National Book Awards, which were recently awarded. Obviously, there's plenty to discuss there, mainly that uh, Laura and I were wrong about literally everything. Well, I guess not. You I, got one no, right. No, I got we'll, one right. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. <laughs> Um, Jump in the gun. But the big, um, the big thing this week is we will be talking to literary agent and online personality Jessica Sinsheimer. Um, so whoop, whoop. yeah, no, we were really excited about that conversation, and we hope you enjoy it. Um, but before we get into any of that, how about the basic rundown? Yes. So we are smack dab in the middle of the month, which means that you have. Two special episodes left mm-hmm. to come. Um, we've actually, because we forgot about Colorado Turkey Day, um, we're going to be swapping it around a little bit this month. First pages will go live on November 22nd, actually, because mm-hmm. we don't want you to like be running to the podcast while Grandma's still on her like first helping of mashed potatoes. Ignoring your family is for December. Yeah. This is November. We're still in National Novel Writing Month. You have to pay attention to your loved ones. Yes. Just give it a month. Just Yeah, just wait until December, and then you can just show them the meme. Yeah, yeah, The yeah. meme rule and then yeah, run yeah. away. But you're, you're, you know, you're getting those brownie points in right now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so <laughs> that'll be out on Wednesday, a day early. And then next week, um, we will have Writing by Reading. And we're really, really excited about that. this one. Um kind of related to the National Book Award conversation, Um, we will be dissecting a selection from Her Body and Other Parties by Carmen Maria Machado, which, as you might know, was one of uh, the the books that I have been most excited about this year. Um, So definitely stay tuned for that. I think it's going to be a real good time. Yeah. So, all right, well, let's get into it. Let's atone. To start, but I guess I have more toning to do you, yeah. than you. So I had okay. For the record, <laughs> can we just state uh-huh. that Eric was almost completely knocked out of the running for NBA kind of bets before we got to the finalists? Yeah, and I was doing real good. I was three out of four, and then I didn't win yeah. a single one. My fiction one was was holding tough. We we had the same one. We both picked the levers. Um, by Lisa Coe. but so just to give us to give the winners, just so everybody knows where we're coming from here for the national. We're very happy for, even though we lost. We're our own very bet. happy for everyone except for the people I picked who have <laughs> let me down, who have betrayed me. Um, the problem is everyone else, not me. Um, but here we go. So for fiction, uh, the winner was uh, Jasmine Ward, Sing Unburied Sing. This is her second National Book Award, which is insane. 
Um, out of three books. Out of three books. Yeah, she's written three books. Two of them are NBA winners. Um, man, crazy. Um, so in nonfiction, uh, Masha Gessen's The Future is History, How, to- how Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia. Um, the poetry winner was Frank Bedart's Half-Light Collected Poems, 1965 through 2016. And the Young People's Literature category was won by Robin Benway for Far From the Tree. Okay. So we didn't get any of that right. Except, no, well, okay. except for in nonfiction, you were correct in guessing that the future is history, how totalitarianism reclaimed yeah. Russia. Yeah. Um, so let's start there for a second. Okay. Because to me, I found this selection to be kind of interesting and kind of across the board. You know, there's kind of a, a theme that I want to get at here. But we talked a lot when we previewed the National Book Award about the necessary um, nature of context of the year. And how it interacts with the um, the books that are getting picked, which one might end up being the winner. Um, basically, what we kind of I think asserted was that um, you know there's a certain amount of cultural resonance and moment you know sort of temporal resonance that most award winners end up having with the moment beyond themselves, right? That has nothing to do with the quality of the work and more to do with how well it hits a given moment and it hits you know a readership at the time when the book you know. History matters. You know, the moment matters. Yep. And um, I had made the point that I really was hoping that The Blood of Emmett Till was going to win because it represented a book that wasn't necessarily chasing the immediate frenzy of, you know, the political moment, right? It was sure. a more thought out. Um, not that these, this book is not thought out. That's not what I'm saying. But it was it was a book that felt a little bit longer in the making. It felt like um, it was one that was based on some scholarship that was, you know, born out of, you know, a real belief and real passion as opposed to trying to chase something. And I was kind of hoping that, you know, that sort of thing might win the day, um, which is not to say that the futurist history doesn't do that. But what it does, I think, reassert is that the um, the context that surrounds, you know, awards like the National Book Award and the Man Booker, they end up really mattering a lot. Yeah. And because, like, obviously a book – um, about how totalitarianism reclaimed Russia, and it's a book about Vladimir Putin, right? Um, we know why that book is popular right now. <laughs> it's because that's the thing on everyone's lips. You know, that's the talking point. Um, and so I guess we sort of enter this conversation where, um, you know, part of the reason this book won is is less to do with how good it is. You know, and I believe it's a very good book. It sounds like I'm dissing it. I'm really not meaning to. But what I'm saying is that, it feels like with this and um, with Jasmine Ward, who also kind of hinted at the idea that the market around her work has changed. You know, there's there's something kind of different, and there's something about these awards, the way they get given out, that feels separate from which who's written the best book, right? So, I I agree with that a lot. I think I you know I am not a huge nonfiction reader, sure. as many of you know, um, and how I picked. Masha Gessen for my winning NBA pick. God damn it. <laughs> my winning NBA pick was quite honestly, I looked at all of the nonfiction selections. Mm-hmm. Um, probably about two thirds of them were very, very relevant in terms of like common cultural struggles. Yeah. You know, you've got the blood of Emmett, T- Emmett Till and then you've got um, 
you know, there was that one, and of course, it's got a very long title, so I can't remember what it's there called. There was another Russia one. Well, there was another Russia one, but there was also one that was about um, a slave that the Washingtons owned. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't think that the other Russia one was going to get it because that one felt a little too chasey. Yeah. And then it was kind of totalitarianism or like the black experience. Yeah. And I think they're like, quite honestly, like, you know, there a lot of it was very, 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 you know, applicable to the current moment. But this one was the one that I think the National Book Award rallied around because it's a national thing. Yeah. You know, it was a it was a little bit more widespread of a topic. It also feels a little bit um, a little bit deeper. Like this is a book that. I think maybe, you know, part of the reason it's having the critical success that it's having is related to the fact that not only is it doing what you're saying, which is kind of tapping into a national cultural vein, but it also goes, you know, it's got some real historical grounding. Like it's not just a frantic chase of a moment. It's um, like, you know, it's kind of a history that goes back to the, you know, the 80s, you know, and kind of traces, you know, this kind of rise of this, um, you know, this figure in Russia and how he's kind of affected, you know, the world today. Um, And... I don't know. That's interesting. I guess it, I kind of worry that some of these awards end up becoming um, which is the most relevant book. Yeah. And I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad thing. That's a perfectly good award to win. But is that the <laughs> National Book Award? You know, I don't know. I mean, personally, yeah. for me, I, you know, I wouldn't have picked this book as the most relevant to my life. But yeah. the the space that I live in as a book you know, yeah. liberal millennial is right. very different from the national space. <laughs> sure. You know? Um yeah. and so yeah, so that that was one I don't know. I'm I'm still happy I won. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it's I'm just like the quote here from um from Gessen um that I thought was especially pertinent um was here we have her and this is from the uh the New York Times recap of the event. I never thought that a Russia book could ever be long-listed or short-listed for the National Book Award, but of course things have changed, Miss Gesson said in her acceptance speech, alluding to Russia's interference in the 2016 American presidential election. So it is, I think, that's like the last little magical ingredient so with all lucky. this stuff, right? It's, it is, I mean, in a way— It's bad for us, lucky for her. It is lucky in a way that I think is like born out of, like, there's kind of that old axiom where— if you're really, if you work really hard and you like do the right things, like you'll get luckier, you know. And that's kind of what it feels like here. Like this is a person who tapped into something meaningful, mm-hmm. you know, that mattered in the world, started writing about it, and it just so happened that, you know, she was so correct that it mattered that the context whipped around, and you know, she won a national book award. And I think that's great. Like I think that that's a really interesting process. Um, and then like moving to moving to fiction, um, you know, one thing that uh, Jasmine Ward said was that she was, you know, so surprised and, you know, there was so much doubt expressed at her earlier on that, um, you know, she wasn't sure that there was a commercial market for books about poor black Southerners. And now she's got two MBAs. And now she's got two MBAs. And it's like, it's it's sort of, it's obviously not the same thing, but there is a, you know, she sort of senses the same sort of idea that the context and the cultural conversation has moved to match her very worthy books. Yeah. And it kind of pushed her over the top, you know? And I think that's great. Like, we want that. And, like, I remember the way we were, you know, when we talked about, like, the sellout last year winning the Man Booker and stuff, it was like, that's, you know, that last little 10% almost of these awards is just what just hits our 
momentary temporal hearts the hardest right then. And I don't know. I want to I wanna kind of hit on, on Jasmine Ward a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So we kind of, we were thinking it would either be the Leavers or Sing Unburied Sing. Mm-hmm. Kind of, you know, yeah. talking talking off the air. It was, I, I think I remember having this conversation with you. It was, well, we both thought that Sing Unburied Sing would definitely win, but she already got the award. Yeah, that was, that so, was our thinking. That was literally our process. That was literally yeah. our process. So we both yeah. picked the Leavers yeah. um, separately. And we talked about this after we had picked yeah. it. Um which which kind of like opens up another thing and this is totally like a human fallacy where mm-hmm. it's like just because there is context a b and c from this writer's career doesn't mean that that's going to affect yeah. d yeah um and you know we we didn't pick george saunders george saunders for the man booker for the exact same reason yeah it was because yeah. he was expected to win it was because he's already won a ton of stuff and to be fair, the man booker over the NBA is, is you know, historically seen as the wild card award, mm-hmm. whereas like, you know, we should have just picked Jasmine Ward for this one. <laughs> um, but it's so interesting to me that that she she's she's batting a 66. She really is. Percent. Yeah. Like. Like, on National Book Awards per public, like her ratio <laughs> is two out of three. Right it's now. so good. <laughs> it's so good. It's amazing. And. and you know, I I don't know. I don't necessarily. I I need to talk to 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 somebody that's been like involved in the National Book Foundation or something across across these these two awards. But I would love to hear the justification behind that because I I like it has to be taken into consideration yeah. like a little bit, right? You would think a little. Maybe it's like extreme case. I don't know. It's like the same Oscars conversation, right? So here's like, here's the reason yeah. why I think it has to be taken into consideration a little yeah. bit. Because a col- a book of collected poetry won the poetry. Oh, here we yeah. This is this is interesting. I have feelings about this. Less, as do I. So what are your feelings okay, about it? So which so one? Let, let's get a reminder here. The book that won is for Frank poetry. Bedart's mm-hmm. Half Light Collected Poems, nineteen sixty five to twenty sixteen. So, <laughs> um, so that that is kind of like entirely contrary to our to your previous argument about uh-huh. kind of this this like modern temporal sense to awards because. Yeah. This is a book like this is a collected book of poetry. Yeah. Um from decades earlier. From decades earlier. Yeah. yeah, it yeah, and I I don't know, I don't know. Like I feel like for this category, they took his entire life into consideration. Yeah. So That's what's know. interesting about it to me too and like following like one thing I thought was really funny and you know, he was talking he even talked about it while it was happening was that Denez Smith somehow was managing to live tweet his experience at the National Book Awards mm-hmm. ceremony, which I thought the uh, the um, the woman who does the uh, book section of the Star Tribune here in Minneapolis, Lori Herzl, tweeted at him was like, how in the world are you able to do this right now? Like, how are you not so <laughs> nervous or whatever sitting there that you're able to like be on your phone and tweeting? And he was like, it's too cool of a moment not to share. But one thing that he and a lot of the other poets, you know, um, that we're kind of talking about it as it unfolded, mentioned is that this bit art book, it sort of amounts in a way to a lifetime achievement award. Yeah. And I thought, ah, man. Like, Why isn't there a lifetime achievement let's award Let's just then? give him a lifetime achievement. <laughs> that was what like, I thought too. Is like, let's just give him a lifetime achievement award. Then. Yeah. Like um, there are, and there are so many. And one of the things I was, you know, it, in the poetry list, yeah. there were so many, you know, it like, 
there were so many works that dealt with identity and and police brutality and kind of like like a lot of it dealt with the current moment. And then the winner is yeah. a group of collected poems. Yeah. So I don't I don't know. I mean, yeah. I was a little thrown by that. I was very surprised. I was yeah. not surprised by any of the other wins. I was very yeah. surprised by this one. Yeah, no, me too. Um so Young People's Lit, Robin Benway, Far From the Tree. Yeah. Anything on that? I So, he, okay, full disclosure. I have not read this book. Mm-hmm. I also had not heard of this book until it was nominated. Wow. And I kind of I feel more so than any of the other categories that that matters mm-hmm. with young people's literature. Yeah. Um I I feel like there are so many books that basically were sea change moments for young people's literature. You know, you've got um, American Street. You've got The Hate You Give, which didn't even make it to the finals. Yeah. And, you know, you you have these books that that were more than just the text on the page. Mm-hmm. You know, they they became, you know. Cultural moments. Yes. In and a way that only YA novels can. Exactly. Yeah. And I am so surprised that the I guess I mean that that wasn't taken into account necessarily. Mm-hmm. I think it was just the book. But again, like with guessing, you know, the future is history, you know, something outside, you know, kind of the the current political zeitgeist was taken into account, mm-hmm. you know, with um with Frank Bedart, his entire collective history with and I know a bunch of you are listening, like, well, that was one book that was released, but yes, there, it still was considered and yeah. it's still won. Like there were all of these other contexts that were kind of looked at in the other areas, mm-hmm. is that I'm just like super surprised that like the revelatory books from young people's literature like didn't make it. Yeah. Yeah, that know. is interesting. Um I'm trying to think what else we got other than when we're going to get to this in a minute. I'm looking at I'm so I'm looking at the New York Times review and I have I have a bone to pick with Oh um, boy. Yeah. With uh Cynthia Nixon who was one of the um presenters of the awards at this thing. And at one point Cynthia Nixon from like Sex in the City? Cynthia I don't know Nixon? who's Cynthia Nixon. Um be sure to tweet me who <laughs> Cynthia Nixon is. I don't Yeah, she's yeah, no, 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 she's she's the she's uh, Miranda. Okay, from Miranda, City, yeah, the totally. Lawyer. No, I'm well familiar with Miranda. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I'm not familiar with Miranda. I didn't think that um, you were. Anyway, she said this. She said, "It's a privilege to be in this room full of huge nerds. I feel right at home." Now, so here's the thing with that, because I wouldn't bring it up if it was just her saying it, but uh, Lauren Groff, um, author of uh, Fates and Furies, um, the great author in her own right, also said that she, she referred to um, the NBA as the Nerd Olympics. And this is my question to you, <laughs> Laura Zatz, as someone who I think is a little bit more fluent in the quote-unquote nerd culture or as the term gets yeah. used in 2017. I am both a nerd and a geek. See, I don't know the difference between those things. We don't and necessarily so, need to parse the difference. Sure, yes. but, okay, but my question is, what's nerdy about being a titan of American literature? That everyone is re- like reading yeah, and like, has heard like of? What's nerdy about being at the National Book Award Finals? Is that a nerdy thing? I didn't think that that was – I thought that was just cool as hell. I mean, okay, so I I feel like that statement – kind of harkens back to that like 
1960s to 1980s idea that like any kid that reads books is a nerd yeah you know like being smart is nerdy not cool but like it is 2017 for the last (laughs) 10 years being a nerd has been dope as hell that's what i mean like i feel like i didn't i guess i i don't know what words mean anymore i'm a bad (laughs) i'm a bad agent i'm a bad i'm bad at everything i'm basically illiterate I don't know anything. Also, out of all of the literature awards, really, the NBA is the Nerd Olympics. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I feel like, you know, the sci-fi award or something, you know, would be yeah, the Yeah. Yeah. The Hugos or right. the Nebulas or even right. getting out of science fiction. Like, why isn't the man Booker yeah. the nerd, you yeah. know, the nerd prize? Yeah. I don't know. But frankly, I'll be expecting written apologies from everyone who used the word <laughs> No. Um, But so there's one last bit of pertinent housekeeping, of course, with this, um, which is that you and I now owe the listening public a reading. Yeah. um, Each uh, of us. As a a reminder, um, Eric will be reading selections from Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh Uh-huh. And I will be reading selections from the Fifty Shades of Grey told from Christian's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. We're we're going to because yep. this we both lost, so this is going to require a lot of time. Uh-huh. So we're going to be releasing this as a special standalone episode. Mm, yeah. Um. Definitely. Definitely. Look out for that after yeah. Thanksgiving at some point. We'll but... we'll announce this the specific date after Thanksgiving, but I just have to like work up the gumption to, you know, like actually purchase right, this yeah. new No, I'm gonna go in there head held high and buy it. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready to make this part of my life now. Well okay. Um, this is my new thing. If anybody um, okay. We have not we have never read either of those. If anybody has a scene suggestion. Yeah, actually that's a great idea. Yeah. Please let us know. Yeah, send us which scenes you want us to please, read. Please, I want to see Eric blush so badly. I blush really nicely. I know. You're very blonde. I got this like, you know, pale skin that just turns red as a tulip when it's time. <laughs> so <laughs> help me with that, folks. Please. Um the other big takeaway I think from National Book Awards season is that Laura and I don't know anything. Clearly. Um, well, you know one thing. I know okay. one thing. You know zero I know, things. I know demonstrably nothing. Um, so that's good. Um, Remember when you won like four categories last year I and was, you were so – I was insufferable. and I that For an was, entire year. <laughs> it was a good year. Honestly, it was it was a good year. We'll rebound someday. I get to be um, one quarter yeah, yeah, insufferable. No, you get in a category that I represent too. So um, you've, you've really <laughs> come in and eaten all the food out of my fridge, so to speak. Um, but um, yeah, anyway – so now it's time to introduce Jessica Sinsheimer, mm-hmm. who is um, one of my favorite people in publishing. She is a literary agent with Sarah Jane Freeman Literary Agency. Um, she's been agenting since 2004 and basically is doing all of the things that I hope to do someday. She is known for manuscriptwishlist.com, hashtag MSWL on Twitter, hashtag PubTalkTV also on Twitter, um, and the Manuscript Academy, which is, um, well, she'll tell you about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's grown out of the Manuscript wish list. Well, so Jessica Sinsheimer, welcome to Print Run. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> love it. Love Excellent. it. <laughs> so we really, wanted, we really wanted to have you on um, because 
you are someone who it seems like is so much at the forefront of so many like new technologies happening, you know, in terms of online stuff for agenting and author access and all this stuff. Um, most notably, of course, MSWL, which I think most of our listeners are probably really interested in, have maybe even used a bunch of times. And so I guess we wanted to kind of kick this off just by asking, how did all this stuff like come about? Like where, you know, where did it come from? Like what made you think of um, wanting to create this, you know, I guess, clearinghouse for just agents and authors to talk to each other? Well, I think a lot of the things that I do start when I see a problem in the world and Mm -hmm. I think I can fix it. Um, To me, there's so much opportunity for connection in the industry over technology, and we're just not taking advantage of it. And as someone, I mean, in 1997, I was on GeoCities, right? Like I was like, the internet is the best thing ever. So I'd come home from yeah. middle school and I'd be like, middle school is the worst, man, you know, before blogs. Um, and all these people would write to me and it basically, I had solved that problem. And also, you know, just you log that many words, you get better at writing. I think I did myself a huge favor in happening to be drawn to this format that was still very, very new. And I think that really... One of my friends says that whatever happens to you in middle school kind of stays with you unless you <laughs> change it. Don't I know. Yeah, that <laughs> sounds about right. I, I, in most cases, I hope that's not true. In this case, I think it is true because that to me was proof that no matter where you are, even if you live in a town like I did where there were sheep across from your high school, you can have this connection with people over this amazing thing called the Internet. And it felt so infinite at that time. And so one of the things that really frustrated me as an agent was – I would see these incredible books that were selling on Publishers Marketplace and I would run into the author at a conference or, or, you know, just this happened many times, many places. And I would just say that sounds absolutely amazing Um, and not actually coming out with like, why don't you send it to me? But, you know, (laughs) and um, and we'd be talking. They'd say, oh, I had no idea you wanted stuff like that. Of course, I would have sent it to you. Yeah. Um, And it felt to me kind of like how when you're applying for jobs, if you don't already have a similar job on your resume, it's hard to get that chance, right? Mm -hmm. And so until you've sold something as an agent and it's, you know, everyone knows about it, everyone's happy for you, you're getting all those congratulatory tweets, you've got your publisher's marketplace listing, nobody seemed at that time to have any idea you wanted that. You could put it on your website, but the odds of every author going to every agent's website seemed quite small, unfortunately, smaller than they should be. So... um, it started as just a hashtag, as you know. Yep. I figured it was easy enough for people to compose a sentence or two about what they were looking for. Short and for tag- manuscript wish list. Yes, yep. hashtag MSWL. And um, it was a way that people could just very quickly say, hey, I want this thing. And people said incredible stuff. And, you know, I'm sure you guys can imagine I emailed a whole bunch of people saying, hey, agents, do you want to do this? And pretty much everyone was like, I'm too busy. I have no time. <laughs> Uh, That's crazy that they would say that because it seems like such a useful thing. Yeah. Well, but it hadn't been proven yet. Right. And so, so many people said that. And then the day came around and it was trending on Twitter. And KK Hendon and I, um, she's the co-founder of MSWL. We were scrambling to keep everybody moving and, and logging things as fast as we could. And it started trending. And suddenly all those people who were too busy found the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> Amazing how that works. <laughs> but, you know, I, I get it. I am asked to do so many things every single day. And most of them, either I can't picture what it is they want me to do, or I just don't feel this, you know, absolute sense of, yes, I should absolutely do this. Can't, can't absolutely do this. Can't wait to 
um, to engage in something like this. This will give me energy. This will do good. Um, and so I could see how if they couldn't quite picture what I was saying, they'd just kind of be like, eh, you know, I'm busy. I have 40 queries to look at today, you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so it grew from there. And um, there were many incarnations of a website. Uh, KK did a Tumblr. I don't even know how she had the energy to do that. It was a huge undertaking. Um, <laughs> We had a, um, a WordPress site that one of my interns one summer helped with. And then um, Mike and Sierra from um, Atmosphere Website Designs actually wrote to me and said, hey, we're writers. We're also web designers. We really like what you're doing here and we think we can help. And I mean, that's kind of everyone's dream, but in particular like mine, because I always wish like my like absolute ideal workplace would include a room of people from Silicon Valley. You could walk in like a secretarial pool from back in the day, be like, hi, I need this thing who can make right, it. Right. And to have two people from Silicon Valley who are not only willing and smart, but also writers who would really, really get it. Um, that just, I still can't believe that happened. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so I had been spending so many hours. People would email me their post and then they'd email me again every time they wanted to change. And just keeping up with that was a part-time job. It was huge. Um, so being able to let technology have them have their own login information and login and change things as they changed because our needs change, our wants change, our interests change, things happen. You know, yeah. maybe we'll see an article and I'll be like, yes, I want this. Um, that just made it sustainable in a way it couldn't have been without the technology. So Jessica, I I first started using the manuscript wish list website to get better submissions in mm-hmm. my slush pile because I represent a lot of um, a lot of larger genres that have very specific subgenres that I get very very tired of very very quickly. Um, but then I noticed that I could also use it in in the opposite direction as an agent looking for editors. How, Mm -hmm. how, how'd that happen? (laughs) Cause it's amazing. Like how'd that happen? Actually, I had been thinking about the change from the tweets to the website when I noticed that some editors were sending me these great paragraphs about things that they wanted. Yeah. And so for a while, um, I think version 1.0 was MSWL paragraph dot something.com. And so that was a way I was thinking about it is the paragraphs that editors send to you. And it just makes it so much easier when you don't have to spend a lunch scribbling down the thing that they must say over and over again. It's so much easier to be able to just have it there so you can focus on them and getting to know them as a person the way you'd get to know a friend you want to recommend a book to. Um, So to me, that just made a lot of sense. And there are so many editors and we can't possibly have lunch with all of them. They're changing all the time. People don't all live in New York either. And I feel like Going somewhere where it takes, you know, you have to plan 45 minutes to get there, at least an hour at lunch, 45 minutes back. Um, Meanwhile, you have so much to do at the office. It's kind of, um, it it, it could be more efficient. Um, It's a wonderful thing. I absolutely love doing it. But in terms of just knowing what everyone wants quickly, it's not the fastest way. Well, I also think, um, and that makes a ton of sense, and one thing that we talk a lot about on this show is how we seem to be kind of experiencing a moment in publishing that is pushing back against some of that um, really geographically concentrated nature of publishing. Like so many, um, you know, more and more agents are outside of New York City, more and more editors are outside of New York City, and uh, more and more writers 
are from places where now they can now, you know, have that sort of conversation with someone who isn't located in Manhattan. And I guess like, you know, I look at this site and I look at this service and I wonder if, you know, as the person who's the most familiar with it, you've seen any shift at all in like, um, you know, what sort of authors might suddenly feel like they can talk to an agent, you know, like the sort of person who maybe didn't, you know, isn't around to, you know, try to, you know, pitch someone at a conference or something, but suddenly they have this site. Like, do you feel that, you know, this sort of service and maybe any other technology that might come along in its wake has the potential to sort of broaden the author pool or even broaden some of the relationships that otherwise might not be cultivated? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's ridiculous to expect that a writer who we assume they have a whole life too. Yeah, you know, right. they probably have family and kids and, you know, maybe they have health problems. Maybe they don't work a day job that pays them a lot. Maybe yeah. they live really far. Maybe they're just busy because modern people are busy. <laughs> um, it's just one of those things. I'm not really sure why it happened, but I certainly felt a speed up when everyone got smartphones. Yeah. Um, but I think one thing that's really key here is that we have – the knowledge wherever we are. It's not like the things we know are less valid because we're not in a loud city all the time. We mm. still know things. We can access the same information. There's no reason if agents can be other places that writers can't be other places too. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so much that we can learn from each other. These are the conversations that can change everything. I had these, um, I had a series of meetings on Saturday, which would be yesterday. Cut them out. I don't know what time it is. Um, <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> so I, I had about two hours of meetings yesterday that were face-to-face from home. And I got to talk with people all over the world with really interesting things to say. And I feel like if you're an author who's taken the time to want to learn more, even if it's scary because – you know, theoretically, the agent could say you're not ready or be mean, though they never would be like, I just, I don't, I don't have tolerance for mean, you know, it's, it's one of those things. Like, I, I feel like I give everyone a lot of chances, but if you're mean, like you're done. Um, so it was just incredible. My favorite kind of meeting like this is when they're a really smart writer they're trying really hard and there's a mistake that they have no idea they're making that's completely fixable. Yeah. And I had several of those all in two hours. And to me, that gave me so much energy because it made me feel like this one key bit of information could change everything for them. And that's not something they can get from their critique partners because their critique partners don't see our inboxes and they don't know what's likely trending in agent inboxes and what annoys us for reasons that wouldn't make sense unless someone told you or things that make you seem like you haven't done your research, even though maybe you have. Um, And even there was a first page and I had to remind this person that in a sense, their target audience is someone who is in a hurry, probably on their second or third cup of coffee. (laughs) Um, Yeah wants something that feels good, even if your protagonist is in a tough position. And so even if your protagonist is in a really scary, ugly world, if your sentences are beautiful, it can draw us in. So it makes me think of like, you know, those wave pools at those water parks where it's very, (laughs) very slow, you ease your way in, and then suddenly you're by this big, you know, machine that could theoretically kill you. But, um, you know, you got to ease in like that. And just again, it was so great to be able to say, you are so smart. You're going to be fine. Here's the mistake you're making. 
So I, I, I do a lot of these meetings too through um, the, the Manuscript Academy um, that, that you also founded. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that grew out of Manuscript Wishlist and kind of who you see using it right now? Yeah, so I have been going to conferences for years. Um, as you mentioned on a previous episode, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of work. And if they only pay for your flight and your hotel, you still usually end up putting out some money to be there. Um, whether it's the, the missed day of work or just lost productivity or the fact that you're exhausted when you come home. Mm -hmm. But it's also snacks at the airport, ride to the airport, um, you know, all the things you'll buy along the way. And so I was more or less okay with that because I was really excited to uh, meet authors and, you know, my budget was ridiculously slim at that point. But I was so good at being like, all right, I have packed all the snacks. I will not need to buy anything. <laughs> um, and so... I, you know, I, I was okay with that for a while, but then this conference came along and they wanted me to do um, an author, agent, editor panel, which would have been fantastic. Um, the things I'd been hearing about this conference made it sound like it was so much fun. It was basically conference of the year, like you totally want to be there. They had invited me to do this wonderful thing at this conference. It sounded like so much fun. And then I asked assuming they would pay for my expenses. And they said, no, they said I could have discounted admission to the conference. Wow. What? <laughs> for oh, working there and for I free. would work at least a day while I was there. Mm. So, um, I started pricing out how much it would cost just to see. Um, and so I think hotel ran around 300 something a night flight would have been a lot. Anyway, all said and done, it would have been about $2,000. Wow. Yeah. And I remember <laughs> I was having drinks with some very fancy agent types, um, kind of like when you're invited to the popular kids table and you feel like you have to be on <laughs> best behavior. I don't know what that's like, like Jessica. <laughs> you're like you're like, you know, shaking a little bit the whole time. And um, and this conference came up and I said, yeah, but, you know, are they paying you? Because sometimes conferences do pay some people and not others. And they said no. And I said, OK, well, it looks like it's going to cost about two thousand dollars. So obviously I'm not going. And one of them said something like, well, if you valued your career, you would go. <gasps> mm -hmm. Yeah. And that little statement right there just made me think about how so many things could be better in our industry. You know, um, it's kind of thrown back on you as an agent if you don't have money. Like, oh, why don't you just sell a bestseller? Um, <laughs> why don't you just have an auction with 15 different houses? Yeah. Why don't you just I, do that? Yeah. Because, Laura, it never occurred to me. No one's ever done it before. <laughs> Great advice. Uh, Hashtag pub tip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or like agent tip. Yeah, oh, my yeah. gosh. Um, but, yeah. And so I was I – was, displeased, first of all, that, you know, they assumed that I should have to spend money on something. And then also the assumption that I should have money or else I'm doing something wrong. Yep. And then I went to the place of, wait a second, this is somebody who has a lot of parental support and yep. has no idea. Not all of us do. And it just, it just got me so angry about, about how all of that works on the agent side. And then I started thinking, well, if this is happening to agents and I mean, we're a privileged group. We're in a position of power. We we have the connections. We can more or less navigate this industry. Mm -hmm. um, again, more or less how in a way that feels good to us. And um, imagine how that is for writers who don't have the same opportunities. And imagine if they never get to meet people in publishing unless they go to one of these. Because I get to do this all the time. This wasn't my one chance. And 
Um, you know, imagine if your friends are saying, well, if you really valued a writing career, you would spend all this money to get a hotel and fly out and maybe a babysitter and all the expenses that would have to go along with that, especially time away from your family, you know? Um, and so I just got so mad. Um, and you know, it's something I'd been thinking about for a long time. And one day, Julie Kingsley, my co-founder, was on a bus to BEA and got into a fight with my colleague about where the bus stop was. And my colleague, Catherine, being wonderful, um, she says after the fact that she just met her and had a bring her to Jessica feeling. <laughs> um, which knowing Catherine, who now spends about half her time in uh, California, this makes sense. Um, and I can say this as a Californian. Um, and... Yeah, so um, she brought her to a happy hour, and I was so impressed with the startup she was working on at the time, and it turned out she had all the skills that would make it possible, because it wasn't something I was going to do by myself. Like, I cannot even imagine how paralyzed with fear I would be trying to do something like that by myself, because yeah. at the first sign of it not being perfect, I would be like, oh, I'm out of this, bye. Yeah. Um, and just having her there to know so many things about technology and the entrepreneur world. And, you know, she ran a media department. So when we hired a film crew and rented a theater space to film our first batch of classes, um, you know, she knew how to do all that stuff. And it's just meant so much to have somebody who, um, you know, is always available on email and text and works as hard as I do. And I actually was just at her house um, for the weekend and we took her dog to the forest and um, made blueberry scones and got a big whiteboard in her co-working space. And I was hoping for one of those like 80s montages where they do all the equations. (laughs) You Um, have to edit those later. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, so we charted out our plan for 2018 on a whiteboard and met one of our advisors on his boat. And it was crazy. It was I yeah, um, all of this doesn't quite seem real, but it's the feedback we're getting is really nice. Like people are saying that it's kind of provided that missing piece for them. Eric and I have spent our entire agenting careers not in New York City. Um, And, you know, clearly we're here on this podcast having takes that other people might not like or necessarily agree with or might be um, not super um, old school in terms of agenting or just kind of publishing. Um, And so in some ways it feels like in a lot of ways we're making it up as we go along or everything that we're doing is a little illicit in terms of, you know, how things should work. Did you get any pushback in either manuscript wish list or with the academy and your work with like using technology to combat like privilege and accessibility issues? Yeah. I mean, I've had enough pushback. Like on the agent side, I feel like most of the pushback I get is people assuming that I just should have started at a financial place that other people did. I feel like there was kind of an assumption that everyone in publishing goes to a fancy college um, immediately supports themselves in a neighborhood you're not embarrassed to admit you live in, um, has lots of fancy clothes, has the Kate Spade bag, you know, there are just those little markers. And yeah, I spent a lot of time feeling like, well, cause there's a lot about the industry that again, it, it feels like people think it's within the agent's control to make lots of money right away. Right. We talked a couple episodes back, um, about, about the AAR. 
Mm-hmm. And I um, mean, you know, basically, you know, what you've just said, I, you know, I totally agree with. But what it does necessitate in a lot of ways, if we're doing things like I, you know, I'm kind of in your line of thought where I spend a lot of time on the front end on the projects I'm working on that often doesn't necessarily uh, facilitate quick sales. You know, I'm the same way as you. Like if they were, you know, a giant sales uh, quotient I had hit, my approach to my work would be would be very different right now. But what that does do is it sort of necessitates, you know, the side hustle. Right. Right. It necessitates, you know, needing to find other, you know, revenue streams as an agent, you know, and that includes things like doing consults for, um, you know, Manuscript Academy and stuff. And I guess um, I was curious, you know, as someone who has really, you know, put a ton of work into creating, you know, sort of a space, you know, one of those streams, um, if you, you know, have any thoughts about, you know, that sort of extracurricular agenting activity, you know, if you feel like, um, you know, AAR, AAR guidelines like that are really um, entirely up to date and useful for what modern agenting has become? Well, I'm with you guys in that everything except for that one clause makes sense to yes. me. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, before I finally did it, before I finally sold my 10 books in 18 months and got to apply and got to be a full member that way, um, the way I pictured it when that moment happened, like just going back to like my deep respect for the AAR and what they're trying to do. Yeah. Um, I had a professor in college who said when she got her PhD, she danced on a table <laughs> and I didn't do that. But to me, it just felt like that kind of accomplishment, yeah, you know, like totally. you're real, you're here, like you're an adult now, basically. And when it finally happened, I was so happy. Um, but I do think there's something really problematic in saying all of your money must come from commission in a world where rent is rising so high and advances are not and salaries are not. And it really does limit who's able to work in this field, especially at a time when we're becoming very aware that we need to broaden the books that we publish a lot. Yes. Um, There are so many things we should be doing, so many risks quote unquote risks. We should be taking so many innovations we should be making. And frankly, like bringing in the people who know best about that is going to require either everyone across the board to pay a living wage or for us to be allowed to have a a side hustle. Um, And I get it that there is room for abuse. Um, There is, I've only heard something this bad one time though, but I did hear about someone who paid an editor um, a lot of money, several thousands, um, to do her manuscript. And then that editor, that independent editor, disappeared. Hmm. Um, Man. And so she went through all of this. Um, it was very difficult, you know, and, and she kept getting emails back like, oh, I'm almost done. But she'd been almost done for months. Um, and I actually never heard the end of that story. I should I should ask her what happened. But it was very painful in the meantime, um, not only to have spent way more than I think a full edit should have cost, but to be duped like that, right? Like by somebody who's supposed to be in your industry and supporting you, that is messed up. Yeah. And especially to take advantage of writers, like what's wrong with you? Yeah, it's, it's pretty shady. And that's like, so for me, like, I guess the way I often think about it is like, you know, it's not that regulations are like that, you know, they shouldn't exist. It's that they just kind of need to be, you know, revised and specified to kind of fit um, new technology. What, yeah, the new yeah. technologies that seem to spring up, you know, like this, like it feels like the sort of guidelines that crop up before any of the things 
um, that we're seeing happen now in publishing, especially the things you know you've created. Don't we want to make it possible for smart people to be in our industry and support themselves? Like it just seems like an enormous waste for me for somebody who's so talented and who could be helping people mm -hmm. um, to be doing something else during the day because that's somehow more moral or because having a trust fund is somehow more moral. <laughs> You know, yeah. like that's the thing I yeah. finally came down to. And I did get pushback. Absolutely. I got pushback. There were some very scary moments in there yeah. when I didn't know what was going to happen. And um, what happened in those moments that really moved me was that there were people who wrote letters to the head of the AAR saying, sorry, I'm like still emotional about it. They wrote and said, here's how much we got paid. Here's how much a conference paid. Here's how much rent was. Don't we owe this next generation what we had? Yeah. Mm. Oh, I just got I just got shivers there. I mean, yeah. I have a, in certain months, like full disclosure, I have I have used income from from Manuscript Academy to literally pay my student loans. You know, it, someone else said that exact yeah. thing. Yeah. And and like being able to afford more than rice and beans. And like yeah. I don't even live in New York. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, I, I think that, you know, I always think a lot about the other agents that are around me. I think mm -hmm. about, you know, like how they make me better and how they see things in manuscripts that I couldn't see. And it ends up like changing the world. And my thought is like, well, what if you are $70,000 in student loan debt and you just like can't afford this? Like, Maybe you can only learn those things and see those things in that manuscript if you actually like work agenting and kind of editing in books all the time instead of like working at a jewelry store, you know, right. there's just like I feel like there's so much talent that that will be brought out by by something like that, which is really well, exciting to me. Yeah. And we can also just like, let's put in some numbers for context, right? Okay. You're not going to be able to rent a room in New York that's in a safe neighborhood, probably for less than $900 a month. Mm. Um, let's assume that you've got your Metro card. That's $120 a month. Let's assume that you're spending, I don't know, $100 a month on food, which is low. Like, good luck with that. That's just your groceries. Um, you know, you've got to also go out and meet editors. Sometimes they don't always pay. They usually do. Not always. You've got to be out and about meeting people. You have to have clothes that look a certain way. Um, you need a laptop, certainly. You need all these things that end up costing a lot more than the average starting salary, if there even is a starting salary. And yet, at the same time, agents are putting it back on themselves. There's this deep culture of shame with having a day job. Yep. Mm -hmm. so, and it's terrible that, yeah. that's, that that's the shame involved. And, it, and at the same time, it's like, here are people who could be doing so much good. Like, what if one person's edits during one of these interactions makes it so that that book works and then that author goes on and inspires so many more authors who never thought they could do something like that it just feels like you yeah no i mean I, I totally agree and it just feels like you know we're kind of at a point you know where the industry it sort of has to pick right yeah like does it want to especially you know as student loans you know get worse and worse for everybody as we kind of you know as you know the workforce that is theoretically entering publishing is more strapped you know than mm -hmm. ever before it has to pick, like, are we going to adapt and allow for, you know, diverse people who, you know, come from different backgrounds to be a part of this and help influence what is a, um, you know, a industry of ideas? Or are we going to kind of clamp down and make it even less accessible than before? Because those are the only two choices. Um, you know, there's not really a stay in the course when, like, as you're saying, rent is increasing, when loans are increasing. You know, it's... Mm -hmm. um, 
and I think, you know, on one side you have people who, um, you know, the folks who really think things need to be localized in New York. And then there's, you know, technology like this. There's the pushback that says, actually, you know, we can open this up and we can make so much of this information and so much of this experience, experiential stuff. And so much of publishing is experiential, right? Like, Laura, you were yeah. just saying, like, yeah. the way people learn in this industry is on the job. Yeah, you and, learn by doing. Mm-hmm. It's an apprenticeship-based yeah, industry. Yeah, exactly. And so yeah. I don't know. I view this kind of thing. And, you know, what I want to ask is, um, you know, where where do you see any of this headed? You know, like where, you know, if you were to like just like obviously this is a giant big question, but like, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, where do you see publishing heading in like five to 10 years, whether it's technologically with the kind of stuff, you know, you're working on or in any other way? Like what comes to mind when you try to like plot out where you think the field is going? Honestly, I'm worried we're kind of on a collision course. So we've got the old way of doing things. It's very expensive, not very mobile, not very fast. And we've got a lot of people who are trying to make all of this something that we can really adapt to new technologies, put out books faster. I mean, I I know so many people don't like digital publishing, but it's really cool how fast stuff can get out there and how we can take risks on books and um, just try stuff and let that creativity be there. And I almost worry that there are going to be people, companies popping up that are not, um, well, I don't know that I worry necessarily. Let's, let's backtrack. Um, (laughs) but we're going to have to adapt or else we're going to fail. If we don't grow, we die. Yeah. Mm. Um, that's, that's the important thing here. And I think it's inevitable that things will get better. I don't think it's going to be easy to get there. Um, but I think we have so many incredibly smart people in the industry, um, who would, make so many amazing things. Like I love to think about if we were a techno a company that had like tech funding, right? And if everyone could make something just because they thought it was cool and have the company's support to do that, we could make so many wonderful things that would help so many people. But we're all so strapped for time and resources in general that it's it's really hard to have enough energy to feel creative. Yeah. And um we all have to just keep making that conscious choice as much as we can within um within our own parameters of what we're able to do. But I, I really think that it's going to become more and more common that we just help each other more wherever we are. Yeah. No, I so mean, you're, I, you're optimistic about this, this collision I don't course. think it's, I don't, well, you know, here's the thing. If publishing doesn't change, we're going to reach a point when other companies that are better at tech than we are um, make publishing more of a tech-based. Yeah, mm. absolutely, that's coming. creative-based field. And that's a little bit scary because we want the people who have what feels like an old fashioned skill. I mean, what is it? Slow reading, they call it now. Um, (laughs) You know, we're going to have a lot of big questions to answer. And I really hope what we can do as an industry is raise ourselves to meet that challenge. And I think we can. I just think it's really hard when as an industry, I think we're change averse, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've been doing things so long. I mean, I get it. Like every time I have to learn a new version of a new app, I get annoyed, but like it's, uh, we have to, we have to grow as much as we can, even if it's hard. Well, the key difference with the, with the having to learn a new version of the app, you get a choice where either you do it and it's uncomfortable for two days and then you're fine and forget that it was ever different, or you just delete the app. With publishing, I mean, don't delete publishing. <laughs> you can't like delete publishing, you know? Like, I guess the closest you can get is like so many people leave this industry, but they probably leave for other reasons other than like, yeah. I didn't oh, want to yeah. learn the app. It. Yeah. There's a really big, um, I'm noticing because I'm at that stage, there's a like early to mid 30s 
group of people who just peace out because yeah. it's so hard. It doesn't pay enough to support a kid unless you're with somebody who, you know, is doing quite well. Or if you yourself, you know, it occurred to you to have your 15 house auction. Um, you know, it doesn't really make for an easy, sustainable life. And so there's that big choice people have to make. And I hope that that doesn't mean that everyone's going to <laughs> leave the industry and delete the app. I don't think it does. But I think we could also put a lot of effort into making it pleasanter for the people here. Um, I was at a party in 2008 that was a merger party when everybody was panicking. And Someone said, look around, you will never see shrimp at a publishing party again. <laughs> and everyone was line. in <laughs> such a panic yeah. Yeah. that evening. Um, I remember some girl's hair caught fire. A candle <gasps> fell on somebody off a bookshelf. It's a little on the nose. <laughs> that is a little um, on the nose. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, was a, it was a rough night. I remember watching a woman go around and pretend to give an off-the-cuff speech three times. And it was one of those offices that's kind of in a big rectangle. And I was just looking for more food and happened to follow her and watch her give this like, we're going to be fine. Ha ha oh, speech yeah. so many times. Brutal. And it was just the most depressing evening. And people were asking things like, is this the end of publishing? And I remember thinking that it wasn't the end of publishing. It, it might be the end of publishing as we know it, but it's not the end of publishing. Like stories are still going to be here yeah. no matter what. That's just how our brains are wired. I yeah. mean, think of all the things people do that are stupid because we haven't evolved out of the world that that was, you know, hammered into us. And, and stories are this wonderful thing that's just baked into us. It's just there. Yeah. We're going to find a way to have story. What form will have it? I don't know. Um, and there are a lot of questions to answer, but the idea of everyone just not reading anymore doesn't seem likely. And, you know, with innovations like we're all living audiobooks because when you're busy, you can listen to them. And uh, Laura, the the unlimited romance from Audible. Isn't it my amazing? <laughs> oh, my God. That they can search like that. When, when you mention the part where they can tell what scene is where um, by the keywords, that is so smart. Genius. I know. Yeah. I hate that I'm saying Amazon is genius, but well, it's are. true well, that they're, they are. Audible had some time to be separate first yep. and create their own culture. At one point, they mailed a bunch of agents um, some tickets to go visit them in Newark and see what they were up to and display their new ACX program, which I thought was very smart. They had a lot of time to get smart before they were taken over, and we don't know what's in their merger or acquisition agreement. Like sure. Maybe they have a fair amount of um, freedom as it is, but they're doing really cool stuff. I suspect they are going to be a big part of the future. I hope so. So um, this has been really great, and we really appreciate your time. Um, we always ask one final question of every guest on, that comes on this show. Um, and obviously, we've spent honestly, we've spent most of this last you know few minutes um, answering it. But um, if you could change one thing about publishing, you know, what would it be? With a magic wand. Yeah, just like you wave With the wand, magic. wave the wand at publishing. What changes? I think there should be grants to help people who are starting and publishing yeah. afford their expenses for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, and I think from there, everything would get better. Well, Jessica, you've given us a lot to think about. Um, I know I, for one, am very much looking forward to see what publishing problem you are solving in the future. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's really great, huh? Uh, <laughs> I think it was. <laughs> yeah. So um, thanks so much for t uh, to Jessica Sinsheimer for joining us. And be sure to look out for her online. And, you know, if you're submitting a book to her or anything, but uh, she'll be around, I'm sure. So 
Um, the right tip. Oh, ending today. ending it as per usual. Ending it as per usual. Um, we will do a right tip, and I think it's a um, I think it's a pertinent one for everything we just talked about. I mean, that is that there is always, always, always in the year of our Lord twenty seventeen. There is always community for writers. You can always find someone else around and or some service that's going to help you get whatever you need. And so I think that the right tip today is just be on the lookout for other people who can help you do what you're trying to do because yeah. look for the resources right. around you. Look for right. the helpers as Mr. Rogers used to say. Yeah. Because writing is such an isolating activity in and of itself that um I think in response to that as we just heard um, so many great author resources have popped up, you know, whether it's, um, you know, manuscript wish list, whether it's, you know, one, any of the critique services you're seeing all over the place, whether it's, you know, print run podcasts, whether it's whoever it is. Like the point is um, writing no longer has to be the isolating act that it once was, at least when you're not actively and literally doing it right that second, you know. And so I would just encourage anyone who's feeling you know, like they're down on their work or they're feeling like they're feeling stuck or something. Um, there's lots and lots and lots of ways to start talking about your work with someone else. And um, I think that oftentimes we can surprise ourselves with how inspired we end up feeling just by having a conversation, whether it's online or whether it's elsewhere. But um, very rarely are we our own most accurate or nicest critics. Um, and so going to these resources and um, using other people in an age when there's so many different ways to do that, I think can really spark, you know, more motivation, better work. Um, and I think we should all be doing it. That was lovely, Eric. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much for joining us for this, our 52nd episode of Print Run. The full deck, baby. The full deck. Um, we thank you and Jessica thanks you. And stay tuned for first pages this week and writing by reading in a normal episode next week. Thank you.